Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, January 24th, 2012. Some of you will have noticed that I was challenged today. As I indicated, it was Thursday for the interview. Hopefully, those of you who are here figured that out. But it is Tuesday, and our special guest is Lee Crockett. Lee, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Steve. Looking forward to it. Really delighted to have you here. The book is Literacy is Not Enough. Lee is one of the co-authors. Ian Jukes, another co-author, was on the interview show uh, about a week and a half ago. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. It's web20labs.com, looking at ways to help educators work with each other. And by Blackboard Collaborate, who provide this terrific room. WeCollaborate.com is the new user community for Blackboard Collaborate. Coming up, if you're going to ISTE, please consider coming early. Saturdays are all day on conference. Used to be called EduBloggerCon, is now called Social EdCon. Plus, we have lots of fun activities, all for free, all at ISTE. Uh, they include uh, the Bloggers Cafe and the what we're calling ISTE Live now, which is the three days of anybody can sign up to present. Sort of a salon de refuse. If you've been turned down by ISTE, if you've been too nervous to submit, if a topic has come up that wasn't uh, topical at the time of submissions, uh, you can you can present. We'll have information on that site. So it's isteunplugged.com. We've also started our Ed Incubator program. This is to help organizations get um, authentic teacher, student, parent councils around their education projects. Our first project is PBS NewsHour. Go to classroom20.com, click on Ed Incubator at the top, and then click on the link for PBS NewsHour. They're really interested in getting your advice and feedback. Our virtual conferences this year are shaping up. We're going to do a fifth anniversary celebration for Classroom 2.0. We don't have a date for that yet. Our gaming and education conference will be on uh, April 26th, 2012. Uh, our alternate education conference is going to be May 10th through the 12th. The Future of Libraries Conference, the second year, sponsored by San Jose State University, is October 3rd through the 5th. And our now annual Global Education Conference, the 12th to the 16th of November. They're all free. Hopefully, they'll join us. Coming up on the Future of Education, next week, David Lurcher talks about learning commons and personal learning environments. Cable Green was to have been this Thursday. I have a flight that conflicts, so we've moved that to February 1st. We have a fun panel on personal learning profiles. Uh, you can see lots of fun there. New on the list is Mimi Ito coming on on March 12th, and that should be a blast. And you can see lots of fun there, hopefully something that's of interest to you. If you've missed a session, they are all recorded in full Illuminate, Collaborate versions and MP3. Uh, last week, we talked to Henry Iring about the Innovative University, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach about the Connected Educator, Mitch Perlstein on uh, family, um, the breakup of the family and its impact on education, Ian Jukes, of course, Scott McLeod. Lots, lots of fun there, hopefully. Again, something worth your while. So now we're going to give you a chance to tell us where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should now see some icons. You're looking for the star. It's the second one down. Double click on that, and then click on the map. And it would be delightful if you give us a shout out in the chat as well. Maybe the time, temperature, location. What a nice, diverse, global crowd we have tonight, Lee. 
Yeah, it's amazing. We have, have people from everywhere, all but you know, everyone's sharing similar ideas and similar mindsets. It's uh, it's wonderful to see. Pegs, I just have to tell you, every time you come on, seeing that star in Mongolia warms my heart. Delighted to have you here and everyone else. Sure, glad to uh, be a part of your day, morning or evening. And if you're listening to the recording, we thank you for doing so. So Lee, this was a really fun book for me to go through in part because of um, having interviewed Ian, but also because I, I, there were so many, I made so many notes in the margins. Have, have you been happy with the reception to this book? Yeah, I've been very happy with the reception. Uh, the, you know, the difference with this book as opposed to some of the previous books with Digital Generation or, or Living on the Future Edge is that, is that this is the, the how book. You know, it's, it's how do we make the change as opposed to the, you know, yet one more book on why. So from start to finish, the idea was to, was to hit it hard, uh, provide a framework and processes that make sense. And, and the response has been great. People, people have been very complimentary of the book. And, and, uh, and, and that feels great as an author, that there's good response. So you say the book is about the how, but there's a lot of why in the book. Yeah, there always. I mean, there has to be some why. There, there always has to be some. So, that, you know, we we opened it up. The uh, the first couple of chapters are really are condensed versions of of some of our other work, just to kind of frame in uh, frame in that how very very or, or the why very very quickly, and then and then move into the facts. It just makes more sense as far as how the book flows. I think there was a lot of why throughout the whole book. <laughs> And, and I, again, we want to move to the house. So we won't spend too much time on it. But there were, you know, you said a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. You used the phrase deindustrialization, which for me is a very helpful phrase. Um, and you also talk about highly educated, useless people uh, coming out of what is the great educational lie. That's pretty strong language. Uh, is anybody pushing back on you? No, most people are, are not pushing back. I haven't had anybody push back yet. Actually, we've had a lot of interest generated from that first chapter and that, uh, you know, that that opening, that opening of highly educated, useless people. And the thing is that those weren't our words. Those were words from from a minister of education of a, of a very highly unnamed, uh, highly profile unnamed country that uh, that described his students uh, in his in his country. And it's it's something that we found that people kind of echo that same feeling is that you know we're we're not. We call it education, but but really, what we're doing is is focusing on content. We're not focusing on process or skills, and and as a result, we have a lot of people that are really, really well educated, but that are really unable to function uh, and, and provide the kind of innovation that we need in this world right now. Yeah, you talk about uh, a Bob Marzano quote of 80-85% of schoolwork is focused on factual recall and lower thinking procedures. But these are the jobs that are going to be the minimum wage jobs if you are learning those skills, right? Well, they're either going to be minimum wage or, or more than likely they're going to be gone. Um, you know, the, the focus on, on the, the bottom half of, of, uh, of Bloom's digital taxonomy on, on remembering and understanding uh, is, is creating a type of person that, that follows instructions really well. And, you know, we go on to, to talk about some of the, the work of Richard Florida and so forth. And, you know, those jobs that require only lower level thinking skills, those jobs that are routine cognitive task jobs, are so quickly outsourced or automated or, or turned into software. Um, 
you, you know, there's uh, drive-throughs in the United States that that the order is taken by a person who's in Taiwan. There's MRI clinics where you have an MRI scan done, and in real time, it's it's uh, analyzed by someone in Pakistan. So the thing is that in a wired world, it doesn't matter where the other end of the wire is. It could be on the third floor. It could be in the third world. It makes no difference. And and so as a result, what we're seeing is. You know, outsourcing used to be this this very strange term, but but we're starting to find that this is just how business is done now. Uh, outsourcing is a and global collaboration is just how how things are done today. And if, if you look at your little map that you put up here, I and mean, we have people all over the world that are all participating in real time in this conversation. So those those lower level thinking jobs, as I said, you know, they can be sent to where to where. Uh, to where the work can be done cheaper. So, so those jobs, if they exist as minimum wage jobs, uh, is even in doubt because that stuff is just disappearing. So I think we're likely to go to some deep thinking in this interview. So I'll start us off with one thought. Uh, I, I really hope we don't get too deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, clearly, that educate our education system. Uh, um, appropriately, if we can use that word, um, fit the needs of a more uh, factory model society with fewer people going on to higher level professions and, and more um, in lower level jobs. Um, but the continuation of that system um, could almost be described as a culture of dependency and, and compliance. And is it possible that uh, our Institutions, our business institutions, and others got kind of used to that way of of the consumers responding. You know, uh, my partner Ian uh, has a, a term that he coined years ago, uh, "tatwadi." You know, that's the way we've always done it. Uh, and I think that there's a great deal of that in in education. You see, that the thing is that that by the time uh, a teacher graduates from university. Uh, they've spent how many years in a classroom? I mean, really, when you think about it, the majority of people that are in education have been inside of a classroom since they were five years old. There's a lot of momentum built up in that. I mean, it gives, it, it allows us to create a, a culture of, like you say, a culture of dependency, a, a system that has solidified itself. And you know, because of the amount of time that that, uh, that we spend in classrooms, we get a very specific frame of reference for what teaching and and what learning and what assessment look like. And it's very, very hard to to break that paradigm. So, you know, as opposed to other industries where you know, people may graduate and or and and then may graduate from university and then start in that career, you know, education is a career that starts at uh, at five years old. So there's a there's a lot of momentum uh, to carry it forward, and and a lot of structure in place to keep it the way that it's always been. And there's there's two industries right now that are. Uh, in the grips of a paradigm change that that uh, is crippling them, uh, one of those industries is is publishing, uh, and we're seeing this in a, in a big way. Uh, the changes that are going on in publishing and and how it's affecting uh, how it's uh, affecting the the print the print industry in in general. You know, Apple's release of the of the new iBooks platform, publishing platform, uh, that happened last week, I and mean, we were already working on converting our books into into that format. Things change so quickly in that in that industry. Education is the other industry that has kind of insulated itself from change for a very very long time, just by kind of focusing on continuing to do things the way they've always been done, and that's just not cutting it anymore. When you have you know half of half of the half of your uh, student population leaving. So there's another argument you make that I'm actually not sure I agree with, 
which is you talk about technology altering the minds of our children. Um, and I'm wondering if we even need to make that argument. Can we not just say that expectations are different, that, um, that, that the cultures that surround school have changed enough that you know, when I was going to school in the 70s, basically the cultural requirement was that I do exactly what my teacher say, says. Now, even without technology, there's certainly a very different culture around students. And do we have to do we have to make the argument their brains are changing in order to to understand that they may be are expecting a different learning environment? No, I don't know that the argument needs to be made anymore. There, there's so much uh, information out there on this very very subject. I mean, you know, not just our book, Understanding the Digital Generation, but you look at, at uh, the work of uh, Daniel Pink or or Gary Small. Uh, you know, so many different people that have been involved in this, and, and there certainly is a, a fact that you know, when, we, when we talk about neuroplasticity and, and how the brain changes, there certainly is uh, a, you know a change factor uh, that comes into play here. It, it's not really the culprit uh, so so much as we might like to think. And there was a time when we really had to focus on just trying to help uh, teachers to understand that students are different and that the way that they work today is different. And and so that you know that. That thinking uh, really had had its place, but I agree with you. I don't know that it's that we really need to make that point anymore. I think people are are really understanding in education that they need to do something different. They've just kind of given up on on the you know really trying to nail down the why and just kind of moving on with it because because they're feeling feeling the pinch of of an industry that's going to cease to exist if it if it doesn't change. So in order for us to make change, it feels as though we have to have some larger cultural agreement where all the stakeholders agree that something is important and we're going to, that, that, that these changes have in fact taken place and, and we need to focus in a different way. What's the difficulty of building that narrative, particularly in the United States? You know, the, there is so many uh, different factors involved in that. I, you know, I don't even want to talk about the, the, the political implications of the question that you just asked because that's, as a Canadian, I'm, I, there's two topics that I try to stay away from when I'm in the U.S. and politics is one of them. Yeah, but there certainly are heavy political, uh, political, political influences in this, in, this, uh, in this case. But as far as getting the stakeholders together, you know, we see just as an example of how we, how we deal with this in a regional level when we come into a, into a district to, to, work with, uh, to work with them on, on making a change to 21st century learning, which I, I saw some of your listeners here that have popped in are places that, that we've done work with. The first thing that we do is we try to build alignment between the stakeholders, that everybody understands the need for change and what that change is going to look like in the end, give them some idea of that. And so that, that involves parents, that involves uh, administration, it involves teachers, it involves the students, and, and quite often we forget to include the students in that discussion, and it involves the community at large. Even in a small setting like that, it is very, very difficult to to gain that alignment, and that's because Everybody is an expert in education. Everybody went to school. So I, every teacher has had that experience where the parent comes in and says, you know, when I went to school, it was like this, and that was good enough for me. You know, why aren't we still breaking the yardstick over our kids' heads? You know, it, it, that, that whole discussion of how it used to be and, and that we're all experts because we've all gone through the education system. I think that's, that is a big uh, challenge in building consensus. For us, we always start with the question of what is it that you want for your students? Start with the big, big question. What is, what is it you're trying to achieve? What is the purpose of what we're trying to do? And when we start talking about those endpoints uh, and, and start talking about the fact that those endpoints are in jeopardy, 
at that point, people start becoming open to the fact that, well, if those endpoints are in jeopardy, then perhaps we need to make some change. So I, I usually find coming at it from the back end and, we're, and working uh, towards the front is, is more helpful. Okay, I'm really intrigued by that. And what you said has reminded me a lot of, I interviewed Tony Wagner and he talked about going out to different districts and building a, sort of a, an educational plan and how when people got together they all pretty much came up with the same set of ideals for their education system. But um, but they had gone through the process, so they were engaged personally. Uh, and that sounds a little bit like what you're saying. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, 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 you know what it is, really, uh, Steve, is it's modeling 21st century teaching is what it is. And it's the same thing we do in our workshops. It's, it's one thing to talk about this stuff uh, intellectually or theoretically. It's another thing to, uh, to guide people through a process where they get to experience it and think about it and come to those realizations themselves. It's much more powerful if you do that. And, and that certainly is the model we use. Okay, so pushback number two. Um, the uh, and you even say this in the book, I think, that, that people end up coming up with the same list of, um, I, I can't remember when, where it was in the book, but there's a list of uh, skills or something and that, that everybody basically agrees. I had this problem when I interviewed Charles Fidel about 21st century skills and a partnership for 21st century skills. And I felt very much like, okay, a really intelligent group of people got together and they determined what those skills were and then there was this expectation that was sort of pushed down. And your book is filled with lists, six Ds, five As, five Is, you know, the five whatever and the six, five skill categories and the six skills. How do you not have people think that they're supposed to sort of just absorb this and not be involved creatively in building on, on their own? The, uh, yeah, the, the list that you're talking about, the, the list of skills, that actually, where that comes from, and that global list that everyone comes up with, is, is from asking any group of stakeholders, so whether it's parents or, 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 uh, or whether it's administrators or, or whether it's teachers, what are the skills that are essential for life in the 21st century that your students are going to need when they graduate? What are those things? And, and that list that everyone comes up with is exactly the same that students need to be able to uh, problem solve. Problem solving is the one that comes up very, very first all the time. Uh, analytical thinking, that students need analytical thinking skills, that they need to be creative, that creativity is, a, is an essential skill uh, for survival in the 21st century, uh, that they're able to communicate, and, and not just with, with text, but in multiple multimedia formats. Uh, and that they're going to, they have to be able to collaborate, and collaborate with real and virtual partners in real and virtual environments. And the last one uh, that everyone comes up with that is the one that's most important to me, I think, is, is really this area that I just call uh, ethics, action, and accountability, which really has to do uh, more with things, items of personal responsibility, fiscal responsibility, empathy, uh, global awareness, environmental awareness, digital citizenship, and so forth. So, so this list becomes pretty standard. Uh, the reason that, that we've come up with the 60s and so forth, uh, you know, for solution fluency, the 60s, is, is, is this, Steve. The problem that I have is that, is that educators love to talk, and we love to theorize, and we love to debate, and then we don't do anything. So, you know, we have this discussion and we say, yes, kids need problem-solving skills, and, and, and yeah, that's great, and we move on. Yes, kids need problem-solving skills, aren't yeah, and, but nothing happens, and that's the frustration for me. I, I look at it and I say, well, what are those problem-solving skills? How do you develop them? What do they look like? 
how can you teach them? Or do we just kind of hope that they happen? Because if they're, if they're critical skills, then we need to make sure that they happen. So the six Ds that you, that you mentioned is, is solution fluency, is a structured problem-solving process, a, problem, a process that can be explained to the kids, that the, that the kids can utilize. They actually become the progressions in our unit plans. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a way that they can learn the process of solving problems as a process as opposed to just a concept. And we do the same thing for, for the other fluencies, for information fluency and for creativity fluency, media fluency, uh, collaboration fluency, and so forth. You know, here, here are the processes, the six Ds, the five Is. And, and they're done that way so that it's easy for students to be able to grasp the concepts and to be able to uh, have a, a system that they can use to, to help them to really develop those skills to the level of fluency uh, as opposed to just an intellectual understanding of those skills. Okay, so I had a delightful day that I basically spent with you even though you didn't know it. And I watched the talk that you gave or portions of a talk you gave, you know, and then I spent um, several hours in the book um, and, and really enjoyed sort of getting to know you. But I'm hoping that you can help me and those who haven't read the book yet or maybe those who have to, to kind of make a little bit better of a mental map. When I left reading the book, I wasn't sure how some things fit together. I'm hoping you can tell me how they do. So there are the five fluencies which are encompassed or are given within the background of global digital citizenship. Then there are those um, six skills the stakeholders identified. There are, you have a chapter on five skill categories. And then there's the Bloom's digital taxonomy. How do these map to each other? And I think your mic is off. Yes, there we are. Okay, I just uh, I was making notes and pressing buttons at the same time. So the six skill categories uh, are are what became the fluencies. So so for us, the six skills that the stakeholders developed are are what became the, the those fluencies themselves. So the problem solving skills that turned from a concept of what is problem or that students need to be able to develop problem solving skills into solution fluency, a structured process for how you solve problems. Analytical thinking, uh, you know, that translates into solution fluency but also into information fluency, a, a structured process for how you access, authenticate, analyze, uh, and apply information. So that's, that's analytical thinking. It, it translates directly into information fluency. Creativity, uh, that moves directly over to creativity fluency and, and communicate, which was another thing that, that, uh, that stakeholders come up with, that turns into media fluency, which is how, how is media used to shape our thinking and how can we communicate our message through multiple multimedia formats. Uh, collaboration fluency is directly related to collaborate, which is, which is the, the, uh, the item that the stakeholders always come up with. And the last one, ethics, action, and accountability become our background. That becomes uh, global digital citizenship as a, as a framework. Bloom's Digital Taxonomy, uh, you know, we have it in there as a discussion of, of uh, for two reasons. We have it in there as a discussion for what is higher level thinking because so often in education we think that we're teaching our students higher level thinking and uh, without really asking ourselves what that is. And when you look at Bloom's Digital Taxonomy, you realize very quickly, as you mentioned, uh, the information we put in there about Bob Marzano, that the majority of our focus in school is on that remembering, understanding, and sometimes applying. And that are testing because it's very easy to do uh, in, a, in a bubble test situation that can be scanned by a computer and so forth, is focusing on those very, very things. So, you know, Bloom's taxonomy, that's where it comes in. The top of Bloom's taxonomy is creativity. 
Uh, and we use, uh, we use this as a discussion of what are the defining characteristics of a 21st century learning environment. Uh, and, and that's really how the pieces all fit together. So, so Bloom's tax, uh, digital taxonomy is just really a discussion of why we're, why we're focusing the learning environment on creating. And the skills of the stakeholders are what became the fluences. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But I was still confused by the chapter that's titled 21st Century Fluencies that basically talks about the five skill categories. But it doesn't really seem to mention the fluencies. Did I miss something there? No, you probably didn't miss anything there. But essentially, what we were one of the conversations that comes up uh, with people all the time is, you know, when we talk about 21st century skills, for example, um, you know, people say, well, isn't a skill a skill? You know, a skill is just—it's just that. It's a skill. But, but you know, skills have changed over time, and that's that's really how that chapter sets up. You know, why are there skills now that are more important? Uh, than there used to be, and why do we need something different? Why is there a new set of skills? So, so that chapter really is just uh, set up to talk about the fact that there are skills that become obsolete. Things like uh, operating an elevator, you know, those are obsolete skills. Uh, and as we move forward, we have skills that have differentiated emphasis or or more emphasis in in the digital generation's lives in the 21st century. And then, and then, arguably, the, what we present as the fluencies is a discussion that there are an additional set of skills that 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 we need to survive in the 21st century, which are are these things that our stakeholders have identified for us. And the reason that we don't call them skills, the reason that we call them fluencies, is because we're talking about the the fundamental tools that are uh, are essential for people to survive in the culture of the 21st century. And I. And for us, being able to, to do that at a literacy level, being able to be uh, you know, relatively comfortable with them, but uh, is not enough. To us, we needed to go deeper than that. These things need to be unconscious processes. They need to be fluencies. So really, that chapter is a discussion of you know, how skills have changed over time and why there is a new set of skills, what those skills are, and how we need to up the bar and focus those skills at the literacy level as opposed to, or the fluency level as opposed to the literacy level. Okay, I'm glad you did the, the, that explanation of fluency because it's sort of critical to the book, right? That this is uh, that these become ways of operating that are uh, so ingrained that they're that they're um, not conscious anymore, right? Yes, absolutely. They they need to be unconscious actions. You know, you don't want to if you're writing, the focus isn't on the pencil. You don't want to be thinking about the pencil because that takes away from the process. You want to be you want to be thinking directly between your, your head and the paper. Uh, and, and so our level of usage with a pencil or a pen is a fluency level usage. It's an unconscious action. And it becomes a, the pencil becomes merely a tool that we use to get the job done. And it doesn't interfere with, with, the, with the actual process itself. It has to be the same thing with these things. We can't be thinking about, OK, how do I solve a problem? I have, first, I have to define the problem. It has to be an unconscious process that you just go through as a natural part of how you approach problems. OK, so uh, you know, in an hour session, we're going to have some difficulty covering in depth each of the fluencies. But why don't we start with solution fluency? So uh, how hard was it to? Um, alliterate uh, in each of these chapters because here you've got six Bs. Yeah, it was <laughs> there was some hair pulling, believe me, at times. Uh, actually, the the biggest challenge that I had 
was developing the process for creativity fluency. Because, you know, I'm a creative person. It's, it's what I do. It's second nature to me. And it was very, very difficult to come up with, uh, to come up with you know, what is that process? What does it look like as opposed to just something that happens auto? I had to break it down from something that happens auto automatically to what does it actually look like as a process. It was difficult coming up with alliterations for these, for sure. And and um, you know, there was actually there was a point where I started to say, you know, I, I need to find uh, L words for media fluency because I had I's, D's, E's, A's, and, and you know, and S's, and I was I was very very close to defining the ideal global digital citizen, which, and it was a real struggle to uh, to come up with some of these uh, as alliterations for sure. So you want me to explain solution fluency to you? Well, let me do something first. So each chapter has the process for the fluency, and then it actually has a um, real-world example, and then a what you call a fluency snapshot, which is to um, to evaluate the level of proficiency that you or the students have with the, the that particular fluency, and then you have a lesson plan grading tool, which is in a very similar format, which allows you to kind of figure out if the lesson plan addresses the fluency. So so maybe we could go through that. Would you like to pick one where we kind of go through and drill down to show how the chapters are laid out? Um, sure, we can do. But uh, you know, solution fluency is, is probably uh, the best place to start. It's the foundational fluency. It's the one that uh, it becomes the background to everything. Um, and, and we certainly can go through uh, the different areas. I guess you know, Steve. The the reason that those those things are in there. I mean, we have the we have the walkthrough. Uh, we have the uh, you know, what are the six Ds? Then we have a real world example. And the reason for that is just to try to make some connection to what does this skill look like in the real world? If we actually do it, what does it look like in the in you know outside of the <laughs> the real world, the world outside of school? You know? um, the fluency snapshot. So many people have asked us, you know, how can I have an idea how my students are doing with solution fluency, and, and so, or how am I doing with it, and so, or how's my class? And, and so, the, the fluency snapshot was designed to be just that, just a, you know, a quick way for you to get your head around really where are your students, or where are you with this. And the lesson plan grading tool, the concept of that was to uh, to really force us to think about what is it that we're doing in our lesson plans and our unit plans? What do they look like? And, and if, if this is a fundamental skill that we need to teach, are we doing it? So this is a way that you can, uh, you can query your lesson to see how, how it's doing in relation to solution processing. Good. And Peggy George asked a question in the chat. And we do go to Q&A. Um, in about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll go to a fuller Q&A. But Peggy is asking the question about um, Common Core Standards and starting with the curriculum and building from there. And, and you certainly that's certainly an approach in the book. Do you want to describe that? Yeah, when it comes to uh, scenario development, and actually uh, I've done this now so many places that I've, that I've worked with teachers, there's two different ways to, to do the approach to scenario development. I, because the, the number one uh, overarching principle is that there has to be relevance. If there is no relevance to the student, not to the teacher, the teacher is irrelevant in the process. Uh, if there's no relevance to the student, the learning won't happen. So you know, our challenge as educators is to make that connection uh, between the real world and the curriculum. Because we're all accountable for the curriculum, because there's no getting away from it, uh, you know, really the, the best place to start for many teachers is the curriculum, to just pick a line item from the curriculum 
and then look for a place in the real world where that might exist, uh, where, where a student might encounter that, you know, where there's some connection to it. The other way to do it, Steve, and it's the way that, that I do it, and it's the way that I see it happen most often once people start to get comfortable and start to move away from the fear of, of accountability for curriculum, is they start to look at real world, real world scenarios, do it the opposite way. Look at a real world situation and then say, you know, how could I apply a curriculum to that? Where does the curriculum exist within it? So there's really two different ways of, of coming up with that real world curricular uh, connection. Okay, so the argument would be um, the skills that are being taught in schools aren't actually going to really help our students. Um, that in fact we need to be teaching them not just skills but uh, fluency uh, in these 21st century fluencies. Um, and that uh, here are ways that you've identified uh, that you could walk students through this process, both the teacher and the student. So if, if we then move to the learning environment that allows for this kind of um, teaching and learning to take place, um, how likely is it that educators are going to have to build this in isolation versus being supported by their institution? You know, it, it depends on the institution. Uh, quite often uh, we see uh, you know, places that we work with that they're pushing it on their teachers. They're saying, we need to make a change. We need to do something different. This is what it's going to look like. We're committing to this. Uh, quite often, we see teachers that say, uh, I, you know, I care about my students. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, whether or not my administration likes it or not. And that, to us, you know, that's the, that's the point. Is that the, the curriculum? And you say, you know, we're not teaching kids the skills that we need. As I said earlier, we're focusing on content. You know, 85% of the questions on our, on our exams have to do with content. So, you know, in an age where we, where we can Google just about anything, you know, we're focusing on content. Uh, as opposed to the, the skill of how do I determine fact from, from opinion and so forth. So the point that we make is, is this, Steve, that, that the curriculum teaches you or tells you what it is that you have to teach. And there's no getting away from it. But it does not tell you how you have to teach it. That is up to you. That is up to each individual teacher in their classroom how it is that they're going to deliver that information. So, so the shift that needs to happen is, is a pedagogical shift. And sometimes teachers are willing to do it. Sometimes the administration walks them through it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, you know, for us, it's, it has to happen. And, and, and we need to build alignment so that both the administrators understand what it is that the teachers are trying to do and the teachers understand the importance uh, of making the shift. So this is an interesting message, and you're not the only one to make it. Um, and we've talked about it on the show before in the context of sort of self-help business books like uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, where the message is to the individual to change rather than the system to change. And uh, one of the things that can occur is that people find that they're not supported and they're frustrated and they are not able to accomplish what they want to accomplish. In parallel track to educators creating this environment, uh, how important is it to be working at the policy level to provide support for that? The, if we want to be really blunt about, about how uh, education is structured, it's, it's focused on accountability. Uh, the, the focus of, of schools, the focus of districts, the, the focus of states is on accountability. When those scores come in, what do we, I mean, we deal with high stakes testing in the United States uh, in just a massive, massive way. 
for us, we work at this, to answer your question, we work at this from both ends. That's why we call the, you know, the people that are, that are signed up to our blog, that's why we call them committed sardines, you know, and there's a whole metaphor about, about making change at that level. So it, it does have to happen from both ends. It has to happen from the, from the teaching end, and yes, there has to be discussions with policymakers, for sure. And, and we do uh, have discussions with both, but for me, you know, I can talk to policymakers for a very, very long time. Uh, the policymakers talk to the teachers, and, and they talk to other experts in education get, to get an idea of what things look like. When we start seeing change happening at the classroom level, real meaningful change, that starts to wake up uh, people further up in the system to see that things are happening different. So it, one is a very long process, one is a very quick process. If I, if I work with a teacher for a few days, uh, or work with that district for a few days, and, and there is a shift, that's going to impact the lives of, of, of thousands of students starting immediately and, and for every year forward. Uh, if I work at it from, strictly from the other end, uh, from the top down end, it's going to be a very, very long time before any meaningful change happens. So it really has to happen at both ends at the same time. It has to be pressure up and down. The committed sardine is a big um, <laughs> you know, phrase for you, right? I mean, it's part of the uh, it, it, part of Ian visiting the Monterey Bay Aquarium and the comparison between the the um, blue whale and how slow it turns and sardines moving quickly and a small number of sardines actually precipitating the change. The, are you aware that John Taylor Gatto uses the same school of fish uh, imagery to indicate just how pervasive uh, it, and the requirement is to all turn the same direction? <laughs> no, I wasn't aware of that, and now you've given me some some fun things to do uh, for sure. I'll be looking. I'll be looking at that. Well, he, I, I, you know, I haven't looked this up, but he says that you know the only other place we really use the word school is school of fish, and and his I, his imagery there is that it's a conformance idea. Um, but let me let's ignore that for the moment. Uh, one of the issues that immediately raised that was raised for me was if we use Egypt as an example, because it happens at the at the local level and it's not at the political or systemic level, you essentially end up with a really really difficult period of time that almost might be described as chaos. Is that likely to be the outcome of committed sardine movement in education? I don't think so. And and actually, you know, we we. Use that sardine metaphor in that same way, actually, because the, you know, at one point in there, just to go back to that, I see how my mind thinking about that now, Steve. You know, we we talk about the fact that a school of fish will stay in the same direction, and that it's a committed sardine, sardines that are swimming in the opposite direction, taking the abuse from the others that are trying to keep them in line. If if that committed sardine stays with that direction, uh, that when a critical mass is reached, which is something like 15 to 20 percent, that the rest will turn and follow. So it's it's really about those people becoming the leaders. Will there be uh, will there will there be mass chaos as this shift happens? No. <laughs> let's be let's be really honest. There's chaos right now. We have we have as much as 50% of our students not graduating, leaving school in North America between the age of grade, uh, grades nine and grade 12. And and you know that's not a little number. And and we can debate it and and say uh, well you know that's just inner city kids, but it's not. It's 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 is nationally. And for any industry to have a 50% defective rate in their product, 
that would be a real, a real, a real cause for concern. Most businesses would not be able to survive with that level of level of challenge. And it's not just at high school because a longitudinal study that was just done following 19,000 university students found the very same rate that the kids that are entering university uh, in a four-year degree program six years later, only 50% of them have actually completed the degree. So uh, we have the same kind of a thing happening at the university level. We, it's, it's, there already is uh, catastrophe happening. There already is a, a huge problem, and, and we really need to be aware of that. That it's, it's, it's not like we need to be afraid that there's going to be a worse problem. It doesn't get much worse than that, other than the doors closing. You know, so, so yes, there is uh, certainly some some challenges that happen when you make the change. In our experience, the challenge comes when you try to do this too quickly. When you when you try to go to 100% uh, 21st century learning, uh, process-based learning, project-based learning, starting tomorrow morning, this is the way we're going to do it. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do, uh, and and there needs to be a, a you know needs to be thought of, about a little bit more. You know, we start off with one lesson per unit, then one unit per term, and so forth, and we we make the shift gradually over a period of time because not just the teachers, but the students also have to get comfortable with a new way of doing things. I mean, we're asking them to think, uh, which is not something that they normally get asked to do. And believe me, they struggle with it when they first uh, are presented with that challenge. Is that what you mean when you use the phrase progressive withdrawal in the book? Yeah, that's exactly what we mean. Um, progressive withdrawal, that's the, the metaphor that we use is that uh, as parents we understand, as difficult as it may be, especially during the teenage years, that our job is that by the time our kids leave us, that they no longer really need us, that they're, that they're able to function on their own. But in school we do the opposite thing. We, do this, we, we create a culture of dependency where, where they're completely dependent on the teacher, completely dependent on the classroom, completely dependent on that system right up until the time they graduate, and then what? You know, we haven't taught them the skills they need to function to, to, to be able to survive in their life outside of school. And, and so what we need to do is progressively withdraw from the control of students' lives. We, it gets to the point where uh, in classrooms that, that uh, you know, Andrew Church is in New Zealand, who I don't know if Andrew's online this morning, but uh, he's, he's, he's uh, also co-author on this book. Uh, and we just spent the last week in Dallas together working with teachers there. Andrew is a great example. I mean, I, I've been in his classroom with him, where students, where his students walk in, uh, and, and then and then move him to the side. Excuse me, Mr. Church, I have to get something out of the cupboard here. Uh, and 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 we'll be having a conversation. We'll look around, and they're all working because they all know what to do. They 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 know what needs to be done, and they're on task by themselves because they've learned that skill. So, progressively withdrawing and and stop it, and stop not having all the answers, uh, just posing questions, and then and then just saying, you know, I really don't know. Uh, that that really is is how we kind of move the burden of responsibility for learning from the teachers where it traditionally has been to the students where it should be. I mean, it's it's their learning. They are the ones that should have the burden of that responsibility. So I like to think that in the interview series we're fairly expansive and we do a form of appreciative inquiry, you know, across a variety of different views about education. Help me to see a distinction here. Uh, I had uh, a guy on from Teach for America, and um, you, you know, again, I have probably some of the same difficulties with Teach for America that others do. But we tried to find the positive, and it felt very much like they had figured out a lot of ways in which a teacher without political support could make a difference in a low-income classroom. At the same time, clearly, this is a Herculean task, and it really burns people out. 
low pay, coming into a heated political environment, and making a difference in a single classroom, but then maybe maybe not lasting in education for two or three years. How is that Teach for America teacher different than the committed sardine? You know the what this this issue you're talking about about uh, about burnout and low pay and uh, you know this this challenge that we're facing. I mean it's it really is a massive problem, Steve. And when you look at it as a whole, it can be very very overwhelming. I, you know, something a lot of people uh, aren't aware of is that I've actually done six Ironmen in my life. Why? Because I was crazy. I, you know, I should have stopped after one. But I can draw a really good comparison to that because, you know, when you're in the middle of a of a 180 uh, 180 mile or 180 kilometer 112 mile bike ride and you and you and you and you just want to stop and you start thinking to yourself, you know, I have to run a marathon after this. Uh, it, it it really becomes daunting the the task ahead of you. So the way that you run a marathon, the way that you the way that you address these problems is all the same. You don't think about the whole thing. You just think about the next mile. You think about the next, the next milestone, if you like, for the, in this change. And and what I have found in my experience is that if we focus, if, if our thinking is is long term, but our attention and our focus is primarily short term, uh, that that there's there's quite a bit of a different uh, different perspective on it. And I've seen teachers so many times. And it happened just last week uh, in Dallas. I was in Highland Park, and it was just marvelous to work with people there. When the light goes on for teachers, when they because it, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place because I've been in, in Japan, Alabama, Montreal, Dallas, and now Vancouver in the last week. When when the light goes on for teachers, Steve, when they when they see the connection, um, their their energy is renewed because you know, nobody's in education for the money. Now, typically, they're in it. Uh, you know, as as Sally just said, they're in it because it's passion. They're in it because they want to make a difference in kids' lives. And when they make the connection uh, with the stuff that we're doing and they see, ah, yes, I'm going to be able to create real-world developments. I see how the students are going to be into this. I get it, and I'm able to make the connections. A light goes on and a fire goes up for them that is, uh, is just astounding, and it, and it really renews uh, what it is they're trying to accomplish. Okay, I get that. But I still feel as though if we look at uh, the examples of Finland and Singapore and Shanghai, that the systemic uh, support of educators, and especially of educator pay, is really somehow critical to the change. In the committed sardine model, the sardines all move, but they're still low paid and they're still doing it as a labor of love. And if I were, OK, so let's say that Hewlett Packard had a 50% defect rate. It would seem ludicrous to me to say to the workers, "Don't you don't ask for better pay? We're not going to improve the system, but we're expecting you to carry the burden of making the product better." Am I being unfair? No, you're not being unfair at all. And I'll be the first one to jump on the, jump on that bandwagon and say that yes, teachers are underpaid, and yes, they're undervalued, and and yes, they're looked at as glorified babysitters by by so so many people, and yes, the system needs to change dramatically to support these people. I absolutely, uh, I'm in complete agreement with you on on those issues. Uh, you know, the the whole backlash that happens and the abuse that happens towards teachers, I think, is completely unfair. We're we're talking about the people that are are largely responsible for cultivating the lives of our students, 
you know, and our children are a very small percentage of our population, but they're 100% of our future. And and they and we cannot look at teachers uh, the way that we the way that we have. We cannot look at the teaching profession in North America uh, the way that we have. It has to be valued as it is in other parts of the world as a as a prestigious uh, as a prestigious profession, a, pro a profession with huge value and importance. Uh, and I, I absolutely am in agreement with you on that. You won't get any argument from me on those points, Steve. Okay, this has really been a lot of fun. We're in the Q and A portion now. So if you have a question for Lee, please feel free to put it in the chat. Or you may also raise your hand, which you can do. There's, there are icons at the top of the participant box. And the third one over is a hand. And if you raise your hand, we can give you the microphone. Usually only a brave few do that. So we'd love to see you be brave. Um, and if I've missed a question in the chat, please feel free to post it again. And I would be, um, it's hard for me to keep track of the chat while we're going along. So Peggy wants to know how the three authors came together to co-author this book. And as a part of that, I'd love to hear you tell a little bit about your own story, because you seem like an eclectic person. Yes, eclectic would be, uh, <laughs> yes, what's the connection, you know, between the three of us and you know, me being an artist and, and having gone to art school in Italy and, and having lived in Japan and, and studied Aikido and tea ceremony and, and all the things I've done. And I, you know, I come from a graphic design background. I, I'll give you the connection between the three of us, actually. Uh, Ian uh, and I used to both live in a very small town in British Columbia. And, and, and a, I mean, a very, very small town. And we both shared an office, office space in the same building. And we got to know each other well over a decade ago uh, in, in that way, uh, working together on his presentations, me helping him with the design work, and then you know, eventually got to the point that we started collaborating on things. Uh, and, and that's really where, where uh, the relationship between Ian and I started. Uh, BC is British Columbia on the west coast of Canada, just north of Seattle. Uh, that's, that's where that is. So uh, as far as the book goes, the first book that the three of us did together was called The Digital Diet. And what happened was uh, Andrew came up to Ian after uh, ISTE in San Antonio and introduced himself. And at the time, I was living in, uh, in, um, in Italy. And uh, Andrew said, uh, or Ian said, you know, we, I have this guy. We should write this book together. He's, he's really great. He's a great classroom practitioner. And so I, you know, I got to know Ian and or got to know Andrew and, and got to meet his kids and, and work with his students and his family and everything. And and uh, you know, all of that relationship happened, interestingly enough, on Skype. All of our books, uh, including this one, are written um, across continents. We we collaborate online to to do all of our writing. And I, I, only one time for two days in at ISTE in Denver, uh, year before or uh, year before last. That was the first time that Ian and Andrew and I were in the same room together, and we haven't been in the same room together ever since. Okay, Mike wanted to know, your ideas seem like they can only be used in units, not individual lessons. Is this true? No, not at all. Um, you, can, you can certainly do, uh, uh, you know, a, um, I'll give you an example. We did uh, solution fluency uh, in a 45-minute uh, block with uh, 150 teachers at a time. Andrew and I did this last week, where we focused on using solution fluency to solve a problem. And we did it, two of us, if you want to talk about class size, two of us working with 150 teachers at a time. And we did it in 45-minute blocks all day long, focusing on just solution fluency, on using the 60s to solve a problem. Uh, same, we did the same thing the next day with uh, information fluency with the five eyes. Uh, matter of fact, in a six-hour period, uh, we had gone through experientially, not just uh, in, in the lecture format, but experientially had gone through each of the fluencies, 
plus had people write and develop units and rubrics uh, in this style. So, you know, although they work better in units where you have more time, they certainly can be applied just in a classroom. Again, if you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat or raise your hand. Uh, Roxanne wants to know, who inspires and motivates you? Well, there are so many people that inspire and motivate me. You know, um, losing Steve Jobs, that was a, that was a, a big one for me. He was, he was somebody that was a huge motivation to me. Um, but there have been so many people, uh, so many people that I've found inspiration in. Um, you know, when I lived in Italy, um, I, I really was able to follow uh, the life and works of, uh, you know, historically of both, uh, both Da Vinci and Michelangelo. And, and those are people that, that uh, really have inspired me greatly. There's, but, uh, you know, there's so many people that you wouldn't know of that I've found inspiration in. Uh, you know, people that are farmers or fishermen uh, or a person who works at the, at the, at the, local, uh, uh, the local Starbucks. That, you know, there's, there's greatness in everyone and, and there, are, there are lessons to learn uh, from, from everyone. If we're willing to just be open and, and listen to what these people have to say, there's, there's so much that everyone has to offer. Well, one of the things that I felt as I read your book and as I thought about you as a person was that you're sort of demonstrating this educator as learner concept. And uh, you know, we sort of have this image of educators who sort of sacrifice everything in their own personal lives. Uh, I'm trying to remember the movie, The Freedom Riders. You know, you're gonna, you may end up getting a divorce because you're so committed to your students. And yet, it seems like if we're asking teachers to create an environment for students that allow them these fluencies and allow them to be self-learners, that the educators themselves have to be provided with the opportunity or see themselves as learners first. Absolutely. Um, one of the one of the uh, discussions that we bring forward is that you know very few people need a four year degree anymore. That, that in a you know in a world that's changing the way it is, that that we need forty years of constant learning, unlearning, and relearning. And and being able to think uh, think and learn in real time, just in time learning, is is absolutely a critical skill. So there's there's two parts of that. We have to uh, support educators in that process. We have to make sure that they have the time and the resources available to them to do that. Uh, but also we have to make sure that they understand that that there is a critical need to do it. You know, for example, it's only three four years ago now that that uh, the iPhone first came out. There was really you know that that has now revolutionized and created industries that didn't exist. You know, mobile gaming and the development of mobile gaming is now a bigger industry globally than gambling if you think if you think about that uh, so you know there's whole industries that are created in in, in no time so the, so this concept of being able to learn and relearn and change uh, what is it we're able of doing upgrading our skills just in time learning is critical for all of us so we're getting a number of questions coming in so two that sound well, well first we'll start with Colleen where does the teaching of reading skills fall in the fluency framework it's inherent in the, in the framework because uh, students have to solve problems and have to look for information themselves. So it's it's inherent part of the part of the framework. Also, the way assessment is done, particularly if you you know even content uh, can be assessed in a in a conditional format. So if if students are required to explain uh, and provide information as opposed to just jot down the correct answer or or, or circle the right uh, the right guess. You know, if they're forced to communicate with language, they're going to develop that language better. So it's, it's certainly inherent in, in this style of learning. 
Okay, two somewhat related questions. Uh, Peggy wanted to know, are there any videos that demonstrate what you're describing? She'd love to see one. And then Danny said, are there plans to post, share exemplars for the fluencies as teachers and students create them? Is there a resource site people can go to for either of these? Well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, we, we have been writing uh, units for the last few years and vetting them against Common Core standards. And we have 140 uh, middle school units ready to go into layout right now. So we're very close to actually releasing a, a substantial amount of exemplars uh, at the middle school level. There are exemplars and literacy is not enough. Uh, and we are also working on a, uh, an online resource where people can write and can collaborate globally on creating unit plans in this format. And that will be a free resource. And, and we expect that that is going to be uh, released by the summer. Oh, yeah, and by the way, nobody knows that yet. Well, your, you, 70 now people that. now do know it. Yeah, we gave you the scoop <laughs> on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, E. Hurley asks, I've been asked to create a list of research skills for KG-G5. It is meant to be used as a checklist of skills teachers can check along the way at each grade level. I'm really uncomfortable with the idea for a few reasons. Do you see any point to doing this? I'd, I'd rather see us have a, you know, a list of skills uh, as benchmarks than a list of content as benchmarks. Uh, I mean, I understand with, what, with why you're, you, know, you have some concern over, over this. Uh, I do. We've, when we put together the, the information fluency snapshot, we did just that. We kind of uh, looked at what were the skills that people were going to have to be able to develop. Uh, and and you know, what would be an appropriate time for us to start thinking about developing those skills? The danger that comes in is, uh, you know, you're in grade two, you haven't developed this skill, maybe we shouldn't move you on. Uh, that, that would concern me. But I don't think that there's a problem at all with, with focusing on skills. I mean, the, the problem is we're not focusing and assessing these things as it is. If we were, if uh, Tom Peters says what gets measured gets done, if we were focusing on measuring skills uh, as opposed to measuring content, we'd have a different education system. We're down to the last couple of minutes. If you have a final question, please feel free to post it. In the meantime, I, I love that Edgar Dale learning cone. And I don't know how I've escaped seeing that ever before. But it was brilliant to me, especially because interviewing seems to sit in a very good place. <laughs> yeah, it does sit in a, in, a, in a very good place. You know, and there is no industry uh, on the planet that ignores its own research more than education does. You know, we have buckets and buckets of research that we just don't ever do anything with. And Dale's Learning Cone is an example. There is debate about uh, Dale's Learning Cone because even though it's been uh, reaffirmed by people like Glasser and Marzano, the, the percentages that were dropped in are arbitrary. But every study seems to line up uh, top to bottom uh, very, very similarly. Uh, it's just not necessarily with those exact numbers. Like, for example, the Medina work in brain rules on the memorization uh, of content and uh, or pictures when you tie it to text shows it about 65%, where in Dale's Learning Corner shows it 50%. So it's still in the middle somewhere, but uh, but there are, the numbers are in dispute. But it's an excellent example of why we need to move from passive activities to active activities. Yeah, in the act of contribution in teaching, I mean, we, we've all known that, um, really significantly increases the mastery of the subject or the content. I also really enjoyed the Bertelsmann study. I, I think I knew that, but it wasn't something I had at my fingertips. 
but you know, essentially um, two different ways of teaching, but identical scores for the year one test. The true test being a year later, a huge difference in how much of the content was remembered. Is that uh, is is there anything you want to say about that? You know, there's that Bertelsmann study, and there's many studies like that, Steve, are, are really uh, critical points because people always say, well, if I make this shift, now I'm still accountable for the test. How am I going to know they're going to pass the test? And, and when you look at that information, when you, you know, kids doing the same performance uh, in, in June, but bring them back in September and surprise them with the same test, and the people taught in the traditional uh, method are only remembering 15%, it's because they've learned the game called school. You know, how you, we call it educational bulimia, the, the memorization and regurgitation of content on an exam. You know, but the people that actually learned the information and internalized it retained 70% of it. That means coming into September, you can, be, and, and it wasn't just content, they actually showed higher level thinking, how they were able to compare and contrast and, 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 and show that they understood the content. Coming into September, you're now able to build with those people as opposed to reteaching last year yet again. We, we, as a courtesy to our guests, we try to finish on time, and uh, I want to thank you for being here. I'm using the clapping button. In the participant box, there's a smiley face, and if you hover over it and go down, there's an applause. Some of you are raising your hand, but I know what you're really doing is clapping. Thank you so much for coming on, Lee. It was my pleasure to be here, uh, and I've, I've really enjoyed the great questions and having the opportunity to connect with so many people. Happy to do it anytime, Steve. Thank you very much. Most appreciated. Lee Crockett, the book is Literacy is Not Enough, 21st Century Fluencies for the Digital Age. Oh, I meant to pull this up so people could see the, <laughs> the fluencies. There you go. Coming up next week, David Lurcher talks about the learning comments and personal learning environments. David lives in the library world. Should be a lot of fun. Cable Green, then on the obviousness of open policy, and then our panel on personal learning profiles. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks so much to Lee. Have a great day or evening, depending on where you are. Bye now.